Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we are going to resume our discussion of Gerda Lerner's book, The Creation of Patriarchy. Written in 1986, this book analyzes ancient texts in great detail, chronicling the development of patriarchal systems from humans' prehistoric past through the time of the ancient Greeks. My reading partner for this book is Sherry Crawford, and she's joining me again today for the second half. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Amy. Thanks for being here again. Um, Before we start the discussion today, I just want to have this little chat. I have to tell you this week, my girls came to me and said that someone that we know pretty well, I won't say who it was, but someone had posted an Instagram on Instagram, a quote by Phyllis Schlafly. Mm -hmm. Uh, The quote is, quote, the claim that American women are downtrodden and unfairly treated is the fraud of the century. Hmm. So, yeah. (laughs) So someone had posted that on Instagram. It wasn't actually our friend who had posted it, but this person that we know really well had liked that post on Instagram. And so my daughters were really upset by it. And so my family, including my, my husband and my son, we were all talking about it. And how does that quote make us feel and why? And we were trying to be open-minded, like, is there any truth to the quote? And like, how do we respond to it? And we all agreed. We kind of all just felt hurt, honestly, like hurt and angry but trying to understand like why why would Schlafly feel that that is a fraud that american women are not unfairly treated especially since in her era it was like the 60s and 70s right and so right. just confusing and anyway we we thought of one response and that was to agree with her in one sense that american women are not nearly as downtrodden and unfairly treated as they used to be right mm-hmm. and so we should feel grateful for that we should focus on the positive and i was just remembering sherry that that's how you ended the previous episode of the podcast when i said what are your, some of your takeaways and you said that you just felt so much gratitude that things right. were so much better now right mm-hmm. um but I, I thought one of the responses to Schlafly and to people who agree with her, I guess, is that maybe that gratitude for continued improvement, that gratitude should go to our foremothers and to their male allies who fought for those changes, right? The fact that it's better now than it used to be is because people have demanded changes at every step. And I think people too quickly forget those battles and they praise the heroes or heroines of the past who Mm -hmm. in their time were villainized, right? Right. They were seen as too progressive and scandalous and they were ruining society. And now the work that they did that was seen as so, um, so scandalous at the time and is taken for granted. So anyway, that experience, just this, having that experience this week just currently reminded me of how important this project is to me um, and why one of the reasons why we're doing this project is that when we encounter quotes like that and it makes us feel hurt and misunderstood and Mm -hmm. kind of lost and confused about like, why does that hurt? And what can I say to respond? I want to be armed with knowledge about the past and facts about our present situation um, so that I can respond in a smart and informed way way. And so, um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to start the podcast today by, by uh, reflecting on 
the fact that this is a history book, but it's always relevant because when we understand our history, we can understand our present better and then respond to things that we really encounter in our everyday lives. Absolutely. Anyway, well, shall we dive in, Sherry? Last time we talked about um, the agricultural revolution. Mm-hmm. You talked about that on the episode. And then we dug into some of humanity's earliest written records, like the Code of Hammurabi. Mm-hmm. And we ended up by talking about the ancient goddesses, Inanna or Ishtar and Asherah. And we talked about how those goddesses were subjugated by the male gods of other male dominant religions, which of course reflected the beliefs of the people who were conquering the goddess, worshiping people at the time. Right. And so that's where we're going to pick back up today. We basically covered the first half of the book last week, and we're going to cover the second half today. So we'll talk about some really fascinating chapters on the Judeo-Christian scriptures and the ancient Greeks, and then we'll cover some of Lerner's conclusions. So I'm going to start with just a quick overview of Hebrew civilization and the Bible as a historical document. And I just want to say... um, Lerner points out that many of Western civilization's metaphors and definitions and ways of viewing gender come from the Bible. So whether or not you currently believe in the Bible, they still form the foundations of a lot of, um, especially Western civilization. And because mm-hmm. of colonialism, that's spread all around the world, right? Yeah. Um, And kind of like the analogy I used last time of an ancient city where generation after generation builds their town along the same grid created thousands of years ago, um, human beings have thought about themselves and each other along foundational tracks that were laid thousands of years ago by this one particular group of people called the Hebrews. And so we're just going to start out talking about the foundations that we still build on and when was it and what were the circumstances. So I want... The other thing I want to say in introduction, I guess, is that I want to tread gently because I grew up believing that Moses literally wrote the first five books of the Bible Mm -hmm. or the Pentateuch. And in Judaism, it's called the Torah. And I believed that God spoke to Moses and Moses wrote a record and that that record hadn't been changed except in like more or less accurate translations. Mm -hmm. And I trusted that it was literally true. Did you grow up based? having like a literalist perspective of the Bible too, Sherry? Absolutely. (laughs) I thought so because the truth is I knew the answer to that question because you and I took Old Testament classes together in college. (laughs) So yeah, I I knew that. I mean, that's the way we were taught even in college, right? So this and the stories of the Bible were really sacred to me and they still are, to be honest. And so I want to say here that we're going to be discussing the Bible as a foundational historical text and a way to understand the beliefs and culture of the people who wrote it. And so there may be some new information that for me was kind of hard emotionally to learn that it wasn't the way I was taught, but there's still room for anyone learning about this to believe what you still believe. You can still believe the Bible is an inspired text or an inspired text with many stories to learn from and live by. You can believe it comes from God. And so I don't, I just want to say at the beginning, we're going to be focusing on some really hard parts of the Bible Mm -hmm. and maybe illuminating some new information, but I don't, the purpose of this is not to undermine anyone's very personal or sacred relationship with these stories or um, I just want to be sensitive to that. 
Um, at the same time, I want to say that the facts that Lerner presents about biblical authorship and when where this text comes from are not just like her opinion, right? They're consistent right. across several sources that you and I have both read now kind of later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied this stuff in graduate courses at Stanford, and I read Karen Armstrong's book, The History of God, a few years ago. And I mean, any reputable history source online or even Wikipedia, you'll find the same information. So this isn't just right. learner's interpretation. Um, there's a historical record that you can fact check really easily. So um, let's start with just a brief summary from the creation of patriarchy, which I'll summarize in my own words. So in terms of timeline, remember that um, from last week, written language began in Sumer in about 3000 BCE. Abraham, the, the patriarch in the Bible, the actual, the guy Abraham was yeah. thought to have lived <laughs> in around 2000 BCE. And then Moses was supposed to have lived around 1300 BCE, depending on which source you look at it about then. Um, So the stories of the Bible, like the creation, like the really, really old ones, the creation, the flood, and then now to Abraham and Isaac, Moses rescuing the Hebrews from enslavement in Egypt. So those stories were not authored by one person, but over uh, they were authored by many people over the course of about 400 years between the 10th and 5th centuries BCE. So prior to that, these stories existed only as oral traditions passed down from generation to generation. So these stories were passed down orally, not like for decades, not for centuries, but for thousands of years before anybody ever wrote them down. Right. That's important to know as we approach these stories. I need to say that when I learned that historical mm-hmm. truth, um, we did an exercise where we talked about how stories have changed just in our own lifetime, <laughs> like family stories. And even yeah. just in our own lifetime, they change and are embellished and some are made greater just with stories in our own lifetime. So anyway, that was an interesting exercise. It, yeah, I don't know how you felt. I cried a lot, actually, when yeah. I learned that. Was that hard for you? Um, painful. Like, yeah. that's the only word. It's so painful. Yeah, it is. And then you can get over it, like, I guess, like I referred to before, and figure out, okay, well, what? how do I feel about it now that I know this? And there are ways of rescuing <laughs> the things that you want to rescue from that knowledge. But, but yes, so scholars believe that there are three main threads of authorship in the book that Christians call the Old Testament. Um, So these authors, multiple authors, again, they lived hundreds of years apart, and separately they wrote down the ancient oral traditions that their people had been passing down for thousands of years. And so, for example, that's why when you read uh, the Genesis, like the creation account, you get two different creation stories. Mm-hmm. One where God creates Adam and Eve in, quote, their image, male and female, right? And so God creates both the man and the woman in the image of God. And then, but you get the other creation story where God creates Adam first and then makes Eve out of Adam's rib as a helper <laughs> so he won't be lonely. So those two different stories have two different authors. 
and they come mm. from two different times and they reflect two different worldviews and they're just kind of pasted into the book next to each other. Mm-hmm. So anyway, scholars have names for all of these different authors um, and you can look it up and read about it if you want. But basically all of these um, threads, all of these different accounts of these oral traditions were first fused into one book in about 450 BCE under the direction of Ezra and Nehemiah. That was in when the kingdom of Judah was under Persian domination and they needed a cohesive volume of their laws and their practices to conserve their identity when they were under a foreign domination. Um, that's about the time of Pythagoras in Greece or Confucius in China. That's when that what we think of as the Old Testament was first written down in one volume. So that is just a, a brief introduction about uh, where this text comes from. Um, yeah, this is important information as we approach this text. To yeah. our knowledge, all the authors from the beginning to end were male. And mm-hmm. these stories were gathered and embellished and changed over many centuries by different groups of men. Absorbing Mm -hmm. attitudes and practices from those men and from surrounding cultures. In fact, Lerner points out that the Code of Hammurabi and the Middle Assyrian laws had a big impact on Hebrew law. Uh, Yeah. She says, quote, the biblical narratives of Genesis composed between 1200 and 500 BCE reflect a social reality similar to that described in the Babylonian sales contract in 1700 BCE, end quote. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it only makes sense, right? That you're going to absorb the practices of the people around you, right? Absolutely. But then, but then once it's written down and then it's like, oh, this is the scripture, this is the word of God, it get, the whole thing gets stamped yeah. under the seal of like approval of God and then, I mean, I'm going to try to keep my opinions to myself on that, but just from a historian's standpoint, that's problematic. (laughs) Um, But anyway, for the rest of the discussion, we chose what we thought were the most important points from Lerner's analysis of some of the books of the Bible, the early chapters of the Bible. So I'm going to take the creation and fall of Adam and Eve, and then Sherry will talk about a woman's worth being defined by motherhood. And then I'll talk a little about women's legal standing in some scenes that involve violence against women. And then Sherry, you'll talk about the Abraham covenant is, or the Abrahamic covenant. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Perfect. We have our work cut out for us. Oh, and then we'll switch gears for one final thing. And I'll share some highlights about how women were viewed in ancient Greece. So if that sounds good, we will... We will dive into the creation of the world, an appropriate starting place. Lerner suggests that when we approach any religion's creation narrative, and all humans have them, Mm -hmm. um, we can ask three questions to help us understand the values of that culture. She says, by articulating how things were in the beginning, people make a basic statement about their relationship with nature and about their perception of the source of power in the universe. So I thought that was extremely insightful and makes me want to like do a whole other degree in comparative religion and Mm. (laughs) and mythology. Um, But she suggests that the questions to ask as we're looking at a creation narrative are one, who creates life? Two, who brings evil into the world? 
And three, who mediates between humans and the supernatural or to whom do the gods speak? Mm -hmm. So if we remember the, the last episode that we did together, Sherry, we, we talked about the goddesses and who created life in those origin stories. A mother goddess, of mm, course. Like a mother she, goddess. A mo <laughs> yeah, the elusive now, the mother goddess. Uh, either herself creating gods or in partnership with a father god, as mm -hmm. we see in nature, right? Uh, we didn't talk about who brought evil into the world last time, but we briefly mentioned that gods spoke to both men and women through priests and priestesses, prophets and prophetesses, male and female oracles in mm -hmm. some of these religious traditions. So Lerner suggests that we keep those questions in mind as we look at this text and what it says about the author's beliefs and attitudes. And again, I just want to draw attention that these authors are just they're people writing down the ancient stories that have been passed down and they have their own biases and their own influences, right? So what does this culture believe about who creates life? So obviously the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the account follows where God says, let there be light. And he separates water from land. He creates animals. He creates Adam. And he tells Adam to name all the creatures. So this is a male father God. There's one they that refers to God, and that's Elohim. And in Hebrew, technically, that means plural gods. But the pronoun is always masculine. Mm -hmm. And the overwhelming conception of this person is male, right? It's always he. There's no mother God creating alone or creating with the help of a male. She's just completely absent. There's no mother at all. So to the, quest to the question, um, who creates life? Genesis answers Yahweh and the godlike male, Adam, who he created. And I just have to throw in, in, in the Mormon temple ceremony, it's even more explicitly a, a team of guys, <laughs> it's like a, a team of men, no women in sight. So you would think that Eve, the mother of all living, would have had some kind of role, but she doesn't. Um, anyway, okay, the second question, who brought evil into the world? So we've talked in, in the previous episodes about the goddesses and how they're represented by snakes and trees. So remember in that first episode, Malia and I talked about the ancient symbol of the snake. And then last time, Sherry, you talked about Asherah, the goddess of wisdom mm -hmm. and the groves and the, the poles and, and those, the beautiful trees. So now let's read, and I actually just want to read a chunk of the verses um, as they appear in the Bible, just so we have the exact words in mind. Sherry, would you mind reading this part? It's Genesis 3. Yes, I get to read the scriptures. <laughs> Check it off your to-do list. Yes. <laughs> now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. 
And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Okay. So it's pretty powerful. Actually, I've read that so many times and it was powerful to just listen to you read it again. And I think we can just let it stand as it is, honestly. Right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, if we ask those questions, who brings evil into the world? The woman, woman. does. And who tempts the woman? It's a snake who, in the context... In, historically and religiously that was a symbol of feminine power mm -hmm. and so she's recast as um a, a tempting figure and then she tempts eve with with a promise of wisdom which is really interesting too because the snake was a symbol of the feminine and of wisdom mm -hmm. but then it's cast in a negative way instead so the woman and then the woman takes fruit from a tree Right. which is a symbol of Asherah, the, also the goddess of wisdom. Right. And that act brings about the fall of humankind and then the subjugation of all wives to their husbands and all women to men. And I mean, I have a lot that I could say about this story and the way it's impacted women's lives throughout history, including my own life. Mm -hmm. Um but instead, I'm just going to read two quotes from Lerner's book and let them just stand on their own, and then we'll move on. Okay. Um, I'm going to read two quotes from Lerner. She says, quote, The consequences of Adam and Eve's transgression fall with uneven weight upon the woman. 
the consequence of sexual knowledge is to sever female sexuality from procreation. God puts enmity between the snake and the woman. In the historical context of the times of the writing of Genesis, the snake was clearly associated with the fertility goddess and, this, and symbolically represented her. Thus, by God's command, the free and open sexuality of the fertility goddess was to be forbidden to fallen woman. The way her sexuality was to find expression was in motherhood. Her sexuality was so defined as to serve her motherly function, and it was limited by two conditions. She was to be subordinate to her husband, and she would bring forth her children in pain. Um, I'm realizing as I'm reading that quote that there's a lot about sexuality in the book that we're not even going to be able to touch, but I would just get the book and read it because <laughs> it's read super, it. it's important, um, but I'm not going to elaborate on that part. Um, the other quote that I wanted to share of Lerner's interpretation is, is this one, quote, the divine breath creates, but human naming gives meaning and order. And God gives the power of that kind of naming to Adam. God granted that power specifically to the human male only. After the creation of Eve, Adam names her as he had named the animals. And then she quotes the Bible and says, And the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Mm -hmm. The naming here not only is a symbolic act of creativity, but it defines woman in a very special way as a natural part of man, flesh of his flesh, in a relationship which is a peculiar inversion of the only human relationship for which such a statement can be made, namely the relationship of mother to child. The man here defines himself as the mother of the woman. Mm -hmm. Through the miracle of divine creativity, a human being was created out of his body the way the human mother brings forth life out of her body. So this just shows um, how completely that traditional female mother goddess myth that actually most of the world's religions share, where there's at least a female component to creation has been completely erased from this story, right? It's a man that does every single part of the creation. There is a woman there and she doesn't do any of it in this, in this narrative where the world's created and she and Adam are created. It's just all Adam's work creating. It's God, the, the father and Adam. Um, so really quickly, I just want to mention, so her third question, who mediates between humans and the supernatural? Or to whom do the gods speak? Sherry, you're going to cover that a little bit more when you talk about the, the Abrahamic covenant later. Mm -hmm. But I'll just share one more quote and then we'll move on to motherhood. So Lerner says, The Old Testament male priesthood represented a radical break with millennia of tradition and with the practices of neighboring peoples. This new order under the all-powerful God proclaimed to Hebrews and to all those who took the Bible as their moral and religious guide, that women cannot speak to God. So I would add here that, of course, there's a caveat that, of course, the Bible is full of women praying to God, right? The same way men do. Mm -hmm. And in the Bible, there are beautiful stories about God answering the prayers of women, right? On an individual basis, the same way 
he answers the prayers of men. So if it stopped there with like individual relationships with, um, with individuals with God, it might be equitable, right? But, but added on top of those individual relationships um, and communication through prayer, only men are entrusted with leadership in the religious hierarchy and only men preside over their wives and over their families and over their congregations and the, and the women have to obey the men. So the answer is to whom does God speak? He speaks to men. Um, so, okay. So that was the creation and the fall of Adam and Eve. So Sherry, let's talk about women's value being defined by motherhood in the Bible. Okay. Um, this is a pretty tender topic. I've already said I'm a mother of four. Um, Mm. I personally remember the fear of not ever being able to bear children as a young married woman. Um, I didn't have words for it then, but now I understand that it was fear of worthlessness, fear of devaluation. These concepts were very much alive in my family heritage and young Mormon girl heart. So these two main points are number one, yibum, a form of Leverite marriage found in Judaism as specified in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, the brother of a man who died without children is permitted and encouraged to marry the widow. <laughs> mm. uh, I remember reading about this as a teen in seminary and again as a young married woman. No shade to my brothers-in-law, but this simply would not work. <laughs> <laughs> Not even one of them. And I I care about them a lot, but they would not take me and it just would not work. (laughs) Good to know. Yeah. Uh, The law could be seen as benevolent, making sure she's not cast out into the streets and alone. But why not create a society where the widow has better options than either marrying Mm. her brother-in-law or being destitute? Right? Mm -hmm. Also, Lerner points out that a woman has to get married again in order to fulfill her purpose as a woman. She quotes LM Epstein's explanation saying the family had paid for her and the family owned her family property was not allowed to lie fallow. So this woman bought and paid for and capable of wifehood and childbearing could not be allowed to be without a husband. Women were really seen as breeders used for their uterine capacity, just used. Uh, It just reminds me like they're just an object. And we talked about object, like objectifying women today and Mm -hmm. the way it's written here just feels like women had no intelligence, no opinion, no feeling. They were not allowed to. Mm -hmm. So Yibam is the first part. Uh, The second is, if you think your only worth is infertility, then barrenness is worth worse than death. I, I personally felt that. Mm. Um, the main biblical story that unifies three major religions begins when the childless aging Sarai urges Abram to have intercourse with her maidservant Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing Go in, I pray thee, unto my handmaid. It may be that I shall be builded up through her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. So <laughs> here Abraham has sex with Sarah's maid, Hagar, who conceives and gives birth to Ishmael. 
Then Sarah becomes so jealous, she makes Abraham kick Hagar and Ishmael out of their family into the desert. Hagar, of course, believes Ishmael is the heir of the Abrahamic covenant, and Islam traces their lineage through him. But of course, then Abraham and Sarah have a baby in their old age named Isaac, and Judaism and then Christianity trace their lineage and claim that they are the covenant people through him. Uh, there really is a lot to unpack here. Um <laughs> And I, we're, I don't think we're even going to go into the infertility story of Jacob, but exactly the same mm-hmm. thing happens, except for that mm-hmm. Jacob has so many wives. Anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> Lerner makes some really interesting points about this passage. There are several underlying assumptions implicit in these accounts. A slave woman, so Hagar, mm-hmm. owes sexual services to her mistress's husband. And the offspring of such intercourse counts as though it were the offspring of the mistress. All women owe sexual services to the men in whose household they live and are obliged in exchange for protection to produce offspring. The dependent status of the free wife is implicit in Sarai's pathetic statement. Quote, it may be that I shall be builded up through her. Sorry, I have to do that in a dramatic way because I'm hearing her voice, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The barren woman is considered faulty and worthless. Only the act of bearing children will redeem her. So Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, um, before offering Jacob her handmaiden, Rachel exclaims, give me children or else I die. When at last God hearkened to her and opened her womb, she said, God hath taken away my reproach. Um, No clearer statement of the reification of women and the instrumental use of wives can be made. Barrenness in a wife, which was interpreted to be failure to bear sons, was a disgrace to her and cause for divorce. Um, Isaac's wife's, wait, Abraham's wife, Sarah, and then I, Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel, all three of those women offer slave women to their husbands rather than be childless. Um, personally, I have very much enjoyed many aspects of motherhood, but it's only part of who I am. Mm-hmm. These women were defined by that one and only part. I have a ton of roles and identities. I'm a teacher, a counselor, a psychotherapist. I'm a hiker. <laughs> I, we never really hear about the hobbies and interests of these women. Um, mm-hmm. I'm able to be a voter and a driver and an HOA board member. Um, I'm a fully fleshed human. Um, since my background is in psychotherapy, I like to think in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I am able to reach self-actualization whereas women in the Bible were barely able to meet their own psychological needs. And it appears it was due to the fact that they were not seen as completely human. Mm-hmm. Slave women had an even worse fate and societal obligation, making it unclear if they had access to even their basic needs being met. Yeah. If you think about what you just talked about with Hagar being cast out into the desert, right? I'm, none of those needs were being met. Right. So now uh, you get to talk about women's social standing in the time of the Bible. Hooray. It's going to get even better. Right. Or something. 
So I'm going to talk about a couple of scenes in the Bible that demonstrate women's status in the culture at the time that it was written. And um, just a content warning that these scenes are violent and do depict rape. And I'm not sharing these scenes for shock value, but I am. We, we decided that we did want to share them because they very vividly show how the men in these stories valued women. And whether these stories technically actually happened or not, um, they do demonstrate the attitudes of the authors who wrote them down because the authors didn't write, isn't this terrible or we don't agree with this? Isn't this awful what happened to these women? They just included them in their holy book. So it seems a little bit like the authors are just saying, yeah, that that seems about right, right? Like there's no statement in there that disavows this violence. And like you Mm -hmm. pointed out, Sherry, earlier where you said that it's just men handing down these stories Right. Generation after generation, interpreting, writing them, interpreting them, disseminating them. It's just man to man to man to man to man. And every man who chose to include these stories in the Bible from the time the scribes compiled these stories in the fifth century BC, all the way through every version of the Bible with monks copying down the stories and the King James translators in the 1600s and then sherry and my faith tradition of mormonism with joseph smith saying the bible was the word of god as far as it's translated correctly and not addressing like these really problematic parts of the bible and saying no this clearly isn't what god wants you to read and internalize as women there's just nobody is saving the women <laughs> right? in the story. No one's saving them. And no one has said, this is a problem. This isn't okay ever. They're just still there in the Bible. So we're going to talk about them um, mm-hmm. because they're in learner's book. And we yeah. thought it, this was an important part. Okay. So just really quick for context, learner points out that the various laws against rape at the time all incorporated the principle that the injured party is the husband or father of the raped woman. We talked about that last time, Sherry. Um, The victim was under an obligation to prove that she had resisted the rape by struggling or shouting. But again, the victim wasn't, or the person who was wronged was the owner of the woman, not the woman herself. Right. Jewish um, and then, yeah, I remember, Sherry, you talked about the Code of Hammurabi and the Middle Assyrian law last time. And Lerner's assessment, um, and remember, Lerner uh, is Jewish. She grew up Jewish. And she says, Jewish law was more detrimental to the wife than the Hammurabic law. The same was true for legislation pertaining to rape, in which Mesopotamian law afforded somewhat more protection for the woman. Jewish law forced the rapist to marry the woman he had raped and specifies that he may not divorce her. Implicitly, this forces a woman into an indissoluble marriage with her rapist. So imagine. Nope. Um, So we're going to talk about, there are two passages that Lerner highlights, and we're just going to talk about one. It's in Genesis 19 verses one through eight. Um, This is the part where, if you remember Sodom and Gomorrah and the man Lot and his family. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going to jump in. This is in the town of Sodom. And there came two angels to Sodom at even. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. 
And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. Which, of course, means to have intercourse with them. Mm-hmm. So uh, verse 6 says, And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him, and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold now, I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, Mm. and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. Mm. So Lerner makes the comment... Yahweh, to whom the crimes of Sodom are so abhorrent that he destroys the city and all its inhabitants, nevertheless saves Lot. Lot's right to dispose of his daughters, even so as to offer them to be raped, is taken for granted. It does not need to be explained. Hence, we can assume it is reflective of a historical social condition. Um, Another similar episode happens in Judges chapter 19 when a different city, it's in a different city, a different group, uh, again, a a group of rapists surrounds a house and demands a man's male house guest who is a Levite. Mm -hmm. And in this story, the host again offers his virgin daughters to the rapists. But instead, the Levite takes his own woman It's unclear whether she's his wife or his concubine, and he throws her outside. Mm. Um, She is gang raped all night. And when she collapses at the front door the next day, the Levite demands that she gets up. She can't stand up. So he puts her on his donkey and she apparently dies on the way home. Mm. You can read it in the Bible in Judges 19. So this man, the Levite, is furious that the rapists killed his woman. So more violence ensues, which results in the murders of many innocent people afterwards. But the whole story is understood to illustrate the people's depravity and the need for a king because the people were so terrible. But when you look at what the story says about the women are regarded, um, well, Lerner says... Quote, this was a crime because of the spoiling of the Levite's honor and property. Mm. The Levite's attitude toward his concubine, who in the Masoretic text is alternatively referred to as his wife. So it could be the concubine. It could be his wife. Mm -hmm. Shows not only his willingness to surrender her to the gang rape, but in his sleeping peacefully during the night of her ordeal. Nowhere in the text is there a word of censure toward him for his action or toward the host who offers up his virgin daughter to save this guest's life and honor. Um, It's just awful. I just don't, it's just awful. There's just, there are no words for how horrifying these scenes are. Right. But I just have to throw in, 
that that mentality, if you consider that these are foundational texts and, and ask the question, like, are there remnants of this still in our culture? Absolutely. I just absolutely. Right. I mean, I, the example, I, I thought of a lot of examples. One of them that I thought of was remember when, um, when Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped and mm-hmm. when she was returned and she, um, she made some public statements. And one of the things that she talked about was that when she was um, sexually assaulted, when she was raped as a teenager, that one of the first things she thought of was a Sunday school lesson that she had been taught that compared a girl who had sex outside of marriage, compared her to a piece of gum that had been chewed and no one would ever want to chew that piece of gum again, right? So the girl had been destroyed. The The girl had been ruined for the man, right? Who was the next man that was going to possess her after her father. She'd been ruined, right? Right. And so she, yeah, Elizabeth Smart talked about feeling when she was raped, thinking, oh no, now I'm ruined. Like no one will ever want me. Right. It's just not a far stretch to see that that mentality persists in our culture today. And it's still being taught um, in Sunday school classes, not, of course, not just within our church, but in, I mean, it's in the text, it's in the Bible. It does influence the way people think about women. And yeah, I just want to say again, I, we're, we're talking about the most horrifying aspects of the Bible. There are beautiful parts of the Bible that still inspire. Um, and so that's not to negate any of the beauty and, um, the empowerment that can come through religious practice and, and however we relate to this text on a spiritual level. Um, but there are some really, really big problems that in at least my lived experience and according to learner are not adequately addressed. So that's all I got for that. Sherry, did, do you have anything or do you want to go into the next part, which is the covenant? I, I do think about our legal system and how awful it is to victims. Uh And so as a psychotherapist, I had clients who have been victims of sexual assault. And in order to complete, like to get justice, they have to essentially be re-victimized. They have to tell their story in an uncomfortable Mm -hmm. way, be recorded in front of a judge and people. It's just awful. And and then all the the perpetrator has to say is, no, I didn't do that. And they get off. Mm -hmm. There's, there's no legal recourse. And so I, I just think about that in my own practice and how it's applied. And I helped several women and girls go through that process. And it just is awful. And it re-victimizes the victim. I, I actually mm-hmm. don't even use the, vic- the word victim in my practice. Mm-hmm. I use the word survivor. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter, matter is that they were victims of sexual violence. Mm -hmm. and nobody really cares about them. Not in our legal system, at least. That's current 2020 America. So I don't know how that fits in, but it does, I think. It does. It does. Because it's on, if you look at it, that's the whole point, is looking at it on a historical timeline to see where those attitudes come from, right? And, And it's getting better. It is getting better, but it's not where it needs to be. And if you trace it back, you you see, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Those are the vestiges. That's what we've inherited right. from our our text. That's our heritage. <laughs> right. 
Okay. So now I get to talk about the covenant. You do. <laughs> Tell us all about it. <laughs> Which I have been calling the penis covenant, but let's, <laughs> let's go on. Okay. The Abrahamic covenant. <laughs> so let's, let me tell you a story about what happened in a large lecture hall class at BYU-Idaho. Um, one of the female students began discussing some aspect of feminism. I just can't remember exactly what it was. But quickly, a male student interrupted the conversation, stating the importance of masculinism. <laughs> While there were a few chuckles, he barreled on, saying, every time he hears the word feminism, woman or women, it makes his head boil. Uh, imagine just for a moment if the tables were turned. <laughs> wow. Right. Um, throughout the entire Hebrew Bible, there's patriarchal language. Mm -hmm. God names Isaac the son of Abraham. Generations of the sons of Noah are sons of their fathers. Like you stated earlier, like the woman is completely absent in the creation, mm -hmm. right? Um, unto Eber was born two sons. Descendants are known as seed. For example, Abraham's seed. This refers to the male portion of procreation. This is not just patrilineal. The women are so totally erased that it reads as if procreation is completely a male act. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned this in our last recording, and I'm just so embarrassed by how long I believed a creation story fulfilled completely by men only, devoid of women. I, I think I was 40, Amy, or maybe late 30s. <laughs> I don't remember. I just believed the creation story the way it was written. No women at all. Well, why would you think anything else? That's all we were ever taught, right? Right. And... While I love the faith of my childhood and it gave me so much, um, I just really wasn't ever taught to think for myself mm. ever. And so here I am thinking for myself and being <laughs> blindsided by this creation story where it's men creating men and men created women and men just doing all the work. And it's like, women are so absent. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in the Hebrew Bible, it's, patriarchal language throughout. And now let's talk about this covenant. <laughs> the covenant between Yahweh and Abraham completely excludes women. Um, here is where I will need to articulate that I am completely unashamed of the human body and will be using <laughs> anatomically correct terms such as penis. <laughs> Fantastic. Right. <laughs> Genesis 17, 9 through 10 says, this is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every male among you shall be circumcised and ye shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a token of a covenant betwixt me and you. This covenant can only be made with people who have a penis. Period. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it sounded like that was part of this quote from oh, the, the Bible. <laughs> yes. I mean, it might as well say that. It might as well. Having it say that. Okay, keep going. Women Sorry. or people with no penises are not able to covenant with the God of the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's okay to laugh at that, right? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it was funny, <laughs> but it's true. It's funny because it was true. Oh, dear. So yeah. here, Learner points out something that I'd never noticed before. She says, we must take note of the fact that Yahweh makes the covenant with Abraham alone, not including Sarah. And that in so doing, he gives divine sanction to the leadership of the patriarch over his family and tribe. Abraham incorporates the tribe and the family in a manner which Roman law at a much later period will institutionalize as paterfamilias. Sarah is mentioned in the covenant passage only as the bearer of Abraham's seed. The covenant relationship is only with males. First with Abraham, then explicitly with Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac, who's referred to only as Abraham's son. I'm still sad that Sarah's not included in that. Mm -hmm. It is sad. The community of the coven is divinely defined as a male community, as can be seen by the selection of the symbol chosen as the token of the covenant. Um, the image of the breasts of the fertility goddess nurturing the earth and the fields has been completely replaced by the image of the circumcised penis, signifying the covenant contract between mortal men and God. So there we go. The penis covenant. Yeah. I remember being in Jerusalem with you, Sherry, taking classes and learning about the Abrahamic covenant and singing about it in church and feeling that that was a very positive um, concept in my mind always. And it wasn't until reading this book and having her spell it out like that, that I realized that the complete exclusion and that if it, you can choose any part of the body <laughs> right. to say, this is what represents a sacred co covenant between a, between a God and a human. Right. And that it, they chose the part of the body, the only, the only part of the body that excludes the women. Right. It just, again, it, I, it's hard to not take it personally for me. It's, it's painful for me. And I'd never noticed it. Well, so. the, the weird thing, neither of us noticed it. And both yeah. of us had positive feelings, both towards the scriptures, the stories of mm -hmm. patriarchs, and the mm -hmm. stories that unify, you know, so many of the people in our culture, we had positive beautiful feelings we didn't realize how we had been erased mm -hmm. women were erased women have been silenced women are invisible mm -hmm. it's deep true breath. deep breath deep breath and learner in describing it so intelligently right um is kind of, I felt like she, each time I've read this book, leads me down a path that is really painful and makes me angry, but it's a way to finally reconcile the things that I did start to feel. I mean, we could talk a, a long, for a long time and we won't about how we started waking up right. and, and developing a feminist consciousness and feeling that feeling of like, something's wrong and I feel alone or I feel hurt or I feel angry and I don't know why. And it's just so helpful to have learners say, um, here's why. Yeah. <laughs> because the, you know, to, to give language and structure around those feelings is eventually really helpful and empowering, even if it's a hard path to walk. 
I, I think it's fair to add also that whenever I would have these thoughts and mm-hmm. I would express them out loud to people around me, I was silenced. I don't know about mm-hmm. you, um, mm-hmm. but I was silenced. Like, of course, that's not true. Of course, you know, God loves you. Of course, God mm-hmm. represents women. God, you know, all these things. And I'm like, but really? Like, mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I personally felt silenced. That's the word that yeah. I've used. And that's the word that used to bring tears. Yeah, no, I completely understand that and relate to it. I think, yeah, we're definitely, yeah, silenced and kind of told that we're being ungrateful, Yeah, that we're being so negative. Like, I, and you know what, you can even hear it in my language, even on this podcast that I feel like I have to give caveats and disclaimers and say, I know there are beautiful parts in there too. I don't mean to focus only on the negative. I'm sorry. I'm being so negative. I'm sorry that I'm pointing out the problems. I feel I genuinely, like I feel um, like I'm doing something wrong still right now. I just realized as you said that um, because that's the response that I get that I'm being difficult when I see a problem in these things. Right. So It's helpful. I mean, and it's helpful to have sisters and friends along the way that we can talk about it and and receive and kind of get validation from each other. Right. And then to be doing this history project together and and be able to again to to have language and um a formulated critique of right. the system, right? Instead of just trying to figure it out on our own and comfort each other but not really ever understand the system and and the historical timeline so well let's let's um leave it at that for the bible learner then go thank and thank you sherry that was wonderful um okay so we're going to end quickly with learner's last um chapters where she talks about ancient greece and historically this there's an overlap between ancient greece and the time of the bible obviously mm-hmm. um the when you look at like what was the timeline of ancient greece it's about 1200 bce to the year 600 ce um which again kind of overlaps some of the the very stories that we were just talking about when they were eventually written down. Mm -hmm. So Lerner points out many, many interesting things, and we've selected three. First, she says, as in Mesopotamia, male gods take over power from the forces of chaos identified with the fertility goddesses. So that happens in Greece as well. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing that she points out, or that we will point out from from her work is she summarizes the status of women in Athens in the following way. She says, women in Athens were excluded from participation in the political life of the city and were legally lifelong minors under the guardianship of a male. Right there, I have to pause and just say that's actually not that different from... (laughs) the way women continue to live all over the world, Mm -hmm. including in our faith community, I would say. I mean, we're not legally considered minors, but may as well be in in certain ways. The common practice of men in their... Now I'm resuming with Lerner's quote. The common practice of men in their 30s marrying girls in their teens reinforced male dominance in marriage. 
the, the main function of wives was to produce male heirs and to supervise their husbands' households. Many female children were exposed at birth and left to die, mm. with the decision over their fate always made by the father. Premarital and marital chastity were strictly enforced on women, but their husbands were free to enjoy sexual gratification from lower-class women, heteri, which was a type of courtesan or prostitute, mm -hmm. and slaves, and from young men. Respectable women spent most of their life indoors, while men of their class spent most of their time in public places. Mm. And I would add there, it, time in public places creating laws and uh, creating the culture, right? They had yeah. they, their hands on the levers. They were the ones who were um, making decisions that would affect the lives of the women at home, and the women were not allowed to participate at all. Right. The third thing Lerner that we're going to point out that Lerner talks about is the legacy of famous and respected philosophers like Aristotle. So um, there are many Greek philosophers that you can look up and look up, look up what they thought about women and just be horrified and infuriated if you would like to. Mm -hmm. um, Aristotle is one of them, and he's important because as the tutor of Alexander the Great, he was really kind of a vector that um, really spread the Greek regard for women all over a huge section of the world mm -hmm. because the Greeks were conquering everywhere. So Aristotle's really significant on his own. But then again, as, as Alexander the Great's tutor, it just went everywhere. Uh, Aristotle was a scientist. Um, of course, back then there were no microscopes. They didn't really know how stuff worked yet. And so they had a lot of ideas and Aristotle makes a lot of speculations about the two sexes and about human reproduction. So in line with just general Greek philosophical thought, Aristotle considers matter um, or like the material world of lower importance than spirit. And of course, that's consistent with a lot of ideologies and religious mm -hmm. beliefs, including Christianity, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in Aristotle's explanation of the origin of human life, there are four causes of life. Three of the four causes are attributed to the male's contribution, the semen. Mm -hmm. And it was only the fourth and the lowest, which was the material, being the woman's contribution. And Aristotle thought of that as... Um, I think he called it katamania. That was like the female secretion. So he thought that those two secretions combined to make a baby, but that the the male contributed the spirit and the female contributed just one fourth of the total. And it was just the lower matter. So of course it follows that any birth defects are because of the female contribution, because that's the matter of the baby. And the most common birth defect is that the fetus is female. Oh. So here is a quote from Aristotle. Quote, for just as the young of mutilated parents are sometimes born mutilated and sometimes not, so also the young born of a female are sometimes female and sometimes male instead. For the female is, as it were, a mutilated male. Here's Oof. another one. Mm-hmm. So Aristotle also said, quote, human society is divided into two sexes, the male, 
rational, strong, endowed with the capacity for, procre- for procreation, equipped with soul and fit to rule. The female, passionate and unable to control her appetites, weak, providing only low matter for the process of procreation, devoid of soul and designed to be ruled. Mm. So to wrap it up, <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to share a summary from a conclu- from the conclusion of the book that brings together these two really, really important threads of the Hebrew tradition in the Bible that will become, of course, the Christian tradition as well, um, and then the Greek tradition as well. So I'm going to read this quote from Lerner. Okay. She says, By the time men began symbolically to order the universe and the relationship of man to God in major explanatory systems, the subordination of women had become so completely accepted that it appeared natural, both to men and women. As a result of this historic development, the major metaphors and symbols of Western civilization incorporated the assumption of female subordination and inferiority. With the Bible's fallen Eve and Aristotle's woman as mutilated male, we see the emergence of two symbolic constructs which assert and assume the existence of two kinds of human beings, the male and the female, different in their essence, their function, and their potential. This metaphoric construct, the inferior and not quite completed female, became embedded in every major explanatory system. And I'll end with that. Cherry, what would you say are your main takeaways from the book? Um, ugh, can I groan? Can that be a takeaway? <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, oh, just, just, just so heavy. Um, but I wanted to end with some of the really powerful quotes that she had in her conclusion and the powerful mm-hmm. quotes that really felt like applied to me in my life. So Lerner says, women have for millennia participated in the process of their own subordination because they have been psychologically shaped so as to internalize the idea of their own inferiority. The unawareness of their own history of struggle and achievement has been one of the major means of keeping women subordinate. So, I mean, I feel like I personally have participated in the upholding of patriarchy, right? In my own personal life. Mm. My husband wanted to do school with me at the same time. And I said, no, no, you finish your higher education while we raise children, while I raise children. I mean, we did. He he did help, but a large majority of the child rearing landed on me. And you chose at the time, even though he you had his support, you said right. no to your own personal individual right. progress. So why, why did you, why did you choose not to? Cause I knew you then. And I remember when you did that. So um, why? Kind of like we talked about earlier, my only worth in my own family um, and in the culture that I was raised in, my worth was found in motherhood. Mm. Um, I just, even though I wanted an education, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to grow my mind. And my husband wanted that for me too. I was the one who subjugated myself. 
Um, I'm not sad about my path in life. Maybe I'm just sad about the timeline it followed. Mm-hmm. But so in that, Learner has taught me that it was my psyche had been shaped from before my birth to feel this way. So I don't mm-hmm. need to keep beating myself up about that, right? Um, right. Yeah. And the only way I was able to unlearn this was through education. Right. Mm-hmm. So here's the, uh, the other quote from learner that I, she just outlines everything in this quote. So she says the system of patriarchy can function only with the cooperation of women. And then I'm going to pause. This is not learner's quote, but I'm going to say women like Phyllis Schlafly. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. um, okay. Back to that's Learner's right. quote. She says, This cooperation is secured by a variety of means gender indoctrination, educational deprivation, the denial to women of knowledge of their history, the dividing of women one from another by defining respectability and deviance according to women's sexual activities, by restraints and outright coercion by discrimination in access to economic resources and political power, and by awarding class privileges to conforming women. And maybe what I really, so that's the end of Learner's quote. Maybe what I made my decisions because I gained more privilege by being a conforming woman. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I can relate to that. I feel that... I- We've had similar paths, Sherry, and I can very much relate to that. I'm, I'm feeling and seeing in retrospect my own complicity too. And I feel the same way that you said that I, I have grieved and I have felt regret, but it's actually really helpful, just like you said, to have the reframing of her reminding us that we we were taught that that was how to be a good right. person, right? right? And, and we were just trying to be good people. And of course, we like praise. We talked about this a little bit in our last episode too, right? You, what little kid doesn't want to be praised by their parents and right. by their community and by the, the, the adults in their world. And so we went along with what we were told we were supposed to do to live right. a good life. Um. And so along we go learning as, as we go, which is the only is way the only way life seems to work. <laughs> Just looking forward. Well, thank you so much, Sherry. This was a marathon and a half. <laughs> um, I so appreciate you putting in so much time and doing this project with me. I, it's such an important project um, to me personally. I, and it's so been thank a privilege, you. Amy. Thank you thank for you. being here. Um, I would say to listeners, I think we would both say to listeners, it's really worth getting this book, even if you check it out from a library and just read the introduction and the conclusion because it is chock full of mind-blowing mm-hmm. insights. And even though the, these both of these episodes are quite long and we broke it up into halves, we still didn't even scratch the surface, don't you think, Sherry? I mean- Yeah, there's so much more. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much more. Um, I think the soundbite to leave us with is Gerda Lerner's most famous quote. She says, the system of patriarchy is a historic construct. It has a beginning, 
it will have an end. Mm. <laughs> so thanks again, Sherry. Um, this was really a joy. Um, our next episode will be a brief supplemental insert in between essential texts because there's a historical gap. I will be reviewing Marina Warner's Alone of All Her Sex, The Myth and Cult of the Virgin Mary. And I'm going to pull from several different texts to demonstrate the different patriarchal structures within the early Catholic Church and then the Protestant Reformation. Um, so that will be our next episode. Following that, we will review the creation of feminist consciousness. So that's the next book in the book club. Um, again, this is by the incredible mm -hmm. Gerda Lerner. And this book covers a time span from the Greeks, where we left off, to the 19th century. And this text is amazing because it brings to light the very first women's writings as they woke up to male the male supremacist system that they were living in, and they began to challenge it themselves. So join us next time for the discussion of The Creation of Feminist Consciousness by Gerda Lerner on the next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm -hmm.